This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 7th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Kentuckians, particularly in Louisville, have had a tense relationship with police for the past year and a half in the wake of the police killing of Breonna Taylor. Though some lawmakers moved toward ending qualified immunity this year, it didn't happen. So what were the reforms adopted in Kentucky? Josh Crawford runs the Pegasus Institute in Kentucky. We spoke last week. We both live in Kentucky. Kentucky has had an interesting two years with respect to the relationship between the broad public and law enforcement, in particular in Louisville. Um, in, in the wake of the Breonna Taylor uh, killing by Louisville police, we saw massive protests. Uh, you know, everywhere else in the country was George Floyd, George Floyd, George Floyd. In Louisville, it was Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor. And so, uh, in in the wake of that, there have been there was some attempts at reform. Uh, there was even an attempt to eliminate qualified immunity in Kentucky in 2021, and uh, you know a lot of that didn't happen. Tell me what did happen. So a couple of things happened. The the first thing they did is they reformed the way uh, no knock warrants are executed. Um, if there is a national best practice for the way that no-knock warrants are executed, the Louisville Metro Police Department was doing the opposite of that, uh, having individuals uh, who who are not trained to do those kinds of warrants specifically, who are doing them in things like street clothes. Um, Which that, was exactly what we saw in the Breonna Taylor case. Absolutely. And that is not how you want to do those kinds of things. You want folks who are specifically trained to do those kinds of things, who are in uniform, who it is very clear that they are law enforcement and not uh, some individual who may be there to rob or harm the uh, the members of the home from uh, from from street life. Um, and so there were some reforms put in place to to make departments all across the Commonwealth comply with best practices. Some departments like Lexington already did, um, but but they will now be the the norm and not the exception. And another bill that I think is really important is they extended the um, things that can get an officer decertified. Uh, they closed a bunch of loopholes on decertification. So, so describe decertification. This is not being fired, but this is being removed essentially from uh, duty that would involve you interacting with the public. So, yeah, in order to be a uniformed law enforcement officer on the street in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you have to be POP certified. And that's true in Louisville. It's true in our rural communities. It's true all over the Commonwealth. And so well, what does that mean? So it means you've basically met the minimum standards for training and you can you can go out and do what you and I would and the listeners would think of as the duties of law enforcement. Without that certification, you can't go somewhere to to be law enforcement if you were at a different department. That's going to be the very first question you get asked. It's probably on your paperwork. And so the decertification process would say, look, you are a Louisville Metro police officer. You've been decertified. You cannot now go to the sheriff's department in Laurel County and get a job there. That uh, that process has existed for a long time, but there were a number of loopholes in the, the conduct that, that decertification covered was relatively narrow. Uh, now it covers things like use of excessive force, um, sexual misconduct with people who are witnesses, arrestees, all those kinds of things. It also closes a loophole around uh, individuals who retire or leave law enforcement prior to the adjudication of a, of a decertification process. Which we, we recently saw in Wisconsin, right. uh, hundreds of officers who quit before they could be fired or otherwise reprimanded for 
uh, things that they had done. So prior to the passage of that law, you could theoretically do that. And then, you know, uh, much like Rob Gronkowski or some of these other guys come out of retirement a few seasons later and decide like, oh, I'll go back to this. And now your, your, your decertification claim has not been adjudicated. N- now that loophole has been closed. It also creates an affirmative duty for law enforcement officers to intervene if they are on a scene and they believe somebody is using excessive force, using unnecessary deadly force, things like that. And that answers one of the questions stemming from uh, from the George Floyd case of what those officers actually had a duty to do while another officer is is clearly violating not only practice and procedure, but the law. All right. So what happens if they don't? What happens if they don't want to take up that affirmative duty? Ah, so they would be subject to the decertification process at that point then. All right. So a lot of this uh, careful listeners of the Cato Daily Podcast will note that we uh, at the Cato Institute, broadly speaking, have one overriding uh, target for uh, law enforcement reform, and that is an end, an absolute end to uh, qualified immunity. So as you understand it, you and I were talking uh, recently just off the cuff about qualified immunity, and you sort of surprised me Mm -hmm. by saying, well, it's kind of incoherent. Right. So the, the basic idea of qualified immunity is that not just law enforcement officers, but all government officials, right, have to comply with clearly established laws, which, again, to I think your listeners and to the average American uh, sounds pretty obvious, right? Uh, you would hope that individuals in positions of power would have to comply with clearly established laws. The way this is played out in the courts, though, because it is largely a creation uh, of the judiciary as opposed to statute, they, of course, point to statute. And as a result of the pointing to that statute, Congress can change this in a way that they usually wouldn't be able to to change judicial decrees and legal precedent, right? Um, Well, they altered federal law in a a sense. Right. And, And so in that sense, Congress can alter it back. They can alter it in a different direction. They can, uh, to, to, the, to the joy of, of the Cato Institute, abolish it completely if they so choose. But forcing or requiring government officials to comply with clearly established law has really run amok in the courts where small factual distinctions, not questions of law, but questions of fact, have differentiated uh, whether or not an individual uh, law enforcement officer or otherwise can utilize qualified immunity. And Justice Thomas, who is probably the most vocal um, critic of qualified immunity on the high court at this point, um, and his criticisms are, are varied, but one of the things that he often points to is it's one thing to, to talk about split-second decisions that are made by law enforcement in the sort of proverbial life-or-death situation, and then other decisions that are made with planning and are the result of departmental practice and things like that. And so I'm of the opinion that all of that, regardless of of the question of abolition or not, ought to be changed by Congress and laid out clearly by Congress, because what we have in the courts is a mess. You may have a particular judge who's really good on this question. Um, We had a judge who's now in the D.C. Circuit, but was a Kentucky uh, federal district court judge who was really good on a lot of these questions. But if you're before a different judge, you may get an entirely different uh, outcome on very similar facts. Okay. And so uh, with specific respect to uh, qualified immunity, you're talking about small factual distinctions, right. which can come down to uh, day of the week, right? whether or not the officer who's uh, being, uh, who's under claims of misconduct was in plain clothes or right. uniform, right. or whether or not the person 
had a knife in their hands or they didn't, or even smaller, smaller right. facts than that. And, and because police, or I should say, and because courts have not dealt with that specific set of facts before they grant qualified immunity, because in their view, the law was not clearly established. Right. That some minute factual distinction constitutes a lack of clearly established law. Um, and I, I think it's hard to argue that that's what Congress set out to do. It's hard to argue that that's what the Supreme Court initially set out to do. But these lower courts have, have been all over the map on these questions. And, and the perverse effect of that is that if, you, if nothing violates clearly established law, there's no precedent to reach. There's no precedent to grab onto when a similar set of facts comes forward next week. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and what that really means is that only the most egregious cases, I mean, only the ones that it, everyone would pick up their newspaper and say, oh my goodness, you cannot do that, right, are the ones that end up uh, with, with a lack of this protection. Uh, there was a case in Kentucky of a woman who went to pick up muffins from a grocery store. She left her children in the car. Uh, they weren't infants. They weren't newborns. They, they were children, though. Uh, air conditioning on in the car. Doors were locked. Kentucky has a law that basically says you can't leave a child in a dangerous circumstance. Um, passersby felt this constituted that dangerous circumstance. Um, she engaged with law enforcement on the scene. Later, uh, a, a sheriff's deputy and a social worker from uh, the Department of Child Services shows up. Um, they do a full search of her children that included a strip search and a, a check of genitalia for abuse. Uh, she was threatened with further action, even though they ultimately concluded that nothing wrong had happened. Uh, and thankfully, a federal judge in that, that case said that there was no uh, qualified immunity in what had gone on uh, that day. And that's another example in which there is no split-second decision that was made. I mean, there was planning and a decision to go over their home. There was a conscious decision made to strip search her two young children. That decision was made before they arrived at the correct, house. Correct. Under no set of circumstances uh, should that be the kind of behavior that is allowed under this doctrine. And Congress ought to clarify that. And thankfully, in that particular case, that one particular case, a, a judge did the right thing. But again, under this particular scheme, there is no guarantee that that's how things play out. So Republicans in Congress right now are qualified immunity as a sticking point mm -hmm. of policing reform. What yeah. would you tell to your senators, McConnell and Paul, regarding qualified immunity being this, this sort of ugly sticking point in policing reform? I would say that like most areas of, of reform, there is an opportunity to have your cake and eat it too. Right. Um, I, I know it is Cato's position that it ought to be done away with altogether. I think there are ways to reform it that don't involve doing away with it altogether, especially in those instances that we've talked about of sort of split second decision making, but to actually clean up a lot of the problems that we've seen. Uh, that would still protect good faith mistakes from law enforcement. It would still give law enforcement the confidence that if they were doing the right thing, that they don't have anything to worry about because. There is some minute change that they are unaware of, um, but it would not allow the misbehavior that has gone on to continue. And, and this is true of, of law enforcement. It's sort of a truism, right, that, that you hear people say, like, most cops are really good. It's just a few bad apples. But that that bores out in the data, right? There was a study done of the uh, of the Chicago, New York City, and Philadelphia police departments 
that found that less than 10% of officers are responsible for about a third of civilian complaints. In Chicago specifically, officers with 10 or more civilian complaints make up 64% of all civilian complaints. So the bad actors are really active and there are a small number of them. And so if you can address those individuals like what Kentucky did with the decertification process. That doesn't do anything to an officer who is doing the right thing. And even an officer who ultimately does the wrong thing in the, in, in the moment, but that most people would sit back and say, like, I understand why he made that decision kind of thing. Um, but for those bad actors, there are ways to address that misbehavior and, uh, and reforming qualified immunity, I think, is part of that question. Yeah, so, so I, I think that the median voter might say, yeah, there are probably relatively few bad officers. But as you say, if they're the ones who are the, the e- people who are engaging in more egregious misconduct, the median police officer mm-hmm. would say, woof, good riddance. Right, absolutely. Uh, I, qualified immunity is a sticking point, I think, in part because of the way that it's been talked about and the sort of visceral response that it has from law enforcement. But that general principle is true, that there, that there are few people who want the bad actors gone more than the sort of overwhelming good actors in law enforcement. So for uh, conservatives who fancy themselves law and order types, yeah. um, what should they expect to see in New Mexico, in Colorado, in New York City, where qualified immunity has been done away with, at least for state claims, uh, what what would satisfy you to say, get rid of the whole thing? Yeah, I, I think it big time remains to be seen. And I think it's going to be difficult given the environment that we are in currently, right? Um, there's this talking point out there that getting rid of qualified immunity will uh, disincentivize folks from going into law enforcement. I don't know how true that is, but we're living through a time period where fewer and fewer folks are going into law enforcement, period, right? And so it is, it's going to be difficult to sort of study that and say, was this the reason or were there all these other reasons? Right? Well, I mean, you could also argue it's the opposite, right? Right. It's that police officers, because there is this protection for these relatively few, as you would say, mm-hmm. bad apples on police forces, that be- they're giving police departments a bad name. Yeah. And then the public responds to that bad name. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the three major factors for recruiting and retaining high quality law enforcement officers are the national culture around law enforcement. We are living in a particularly bad time period for that right now. The local culture around law enforcement, which isn't just like how your local community feels, but the actual like leadership of your police department. Is there a history of scandal? Those kinds of things. And then pay and in particular health care benefits. So those are the big sort of three in law enforcement recruitment and retention. And so to that third or excuse me, to that middle one, which really is the biggest factor, local environment, right? Because if there are folks who want to go into law enforcement, but they say the Louisville Police Department is a mess, they're going to go to Lexington or they're going to go to Nashville or they're going to, they're going to stay in law enforcement, but they'll go somewhere else. And so unpunished bad acts in a police department can certainly serve that disincentive. And I mean, that's something that Louisville is very much living through right now, not just because of Breonna Taylor, but because of, of scandal after scandal that preceded that. Josh Crawford directs the Pegasus Institute in Kentucky. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.